Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence into this place, asking for you to move in areas of our heart that have been closed off, asking for you to encourage us in areas where we feel just self-loathing and bummed out and hurting, Uh, just asking for your move to happen in this people in this day. Give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are working our way through the gospel according to Matthew. And a couple of weeks ago, it's actually, it's been a minute since I've been up here. I had three weeks of not preaching. So a little crazy for me and it felt great. Uh, But as we're making our way through Matthew, we're highlighting putting great emphasis on this idea of the kingdom of God. And we've also been noting a bunch of parallels that have been happening uh, through the story that Matthew is telling in relation even to the Exodus story. You can draw way back when to when I was discussing this around Christmas time. And we've come to this moment where Jesus is gathering these disciples and followers. And the wording is uncanny. Matthew says, he goes up to the mount. And it's the same kind of emphasis, if you're a Bible nerd whatsoever, of the Exodus story in which God has called the Israelites out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness in which then Moses is given this law that he's to take down and share with the people of Israel. And what we see here in Matthew, and I can't highlight all of the parallels today. You'd have to go back and re-listen. But we've moved to this moment where Jesus is gathering these disciples, and he's talking about this new kind of community, this new kind of people. And Matthew is telling us all the different kinds of people that God, that Jesus is calling, is drawing in to be a part of his kingdom. And two weeks ago, Michael talked about blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the persecuted. And you can continue to read Matthew's account, and you can see that Jesus is not going after those who are powerful and prestigious and in palaces and high places, but he's going and calling those that are marginalized and pushed to the outskirts, and he's calling them into his kingdom. And his kingdom is radically different. Some might say a contrast culture counterculture, and now he's going to begin to give teaching on what it looks like to be in his kingdom. And let me tell you, there is lots and lots to discuss in Matthew chapter 5. We could honestly spend months in just this section alone, but I've been tasked with moving through it fairly quickly here this morning. But where we're going with this is, and if you've missed this, you've missed the whole of Matthew. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. All right, great. And he has a kingdom and he is calling people to participate, to be in his kingdom. Now, what's intriguing and interesting about this is anytime there is a movement of a king coming in, there is going to be some type of rule that is established amongst the people that are under this king. 
Now, let me just give a soft example of this. If you've ever been in a corporation where you've had some type of takeover, where you're just a cog in the system, an employee that's going about, and all of a sudden you have new leadership who bought you out, what do you inevitably get? New rules, new handbook, new things that you can do, new things that you can't do. And there's going to be this resistance of, but wait a second, this is our way of doing things. This is our culture. And maybe in this soft example, there is some leniency in which some things might slide under the table and they're not too detrimental. But now think about this. Whenever you read, for example, even in the scriptures, Israel was taken over by, for for example, Babylon. They had to come under whose rules? Their rules are Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar's. Our King Darius, he set forth new decrees over the Israelites. New rules, new reign, new law. Even Moses, when the people come out of Egypt, goes to the mountain and says, you know what? Here's how we're going to function as a grouping of people. Here's what it looks like to have a moral code of conduct with one another. Here's what it looks like when it comes to lending money. Here's what it looks like when it comes to strangers and pilgrims. Here's what it looks like and how we're to treat one another. Now, for us, we put some distance between this thought process because here we're not under a monarch or threat of some kind of foreign kingship coming. Maybe if you're QAnon, and I don't know, we'll see. So some kind of foreign rulership where you go, oh, everything is about to change. But that's, that's what kings would bring in. New kingship, new rules. So here you have Jesus, who is a king, who has a kingdom, who is calling a people. What's unique about this circumstance and situation is when most kings, or just about every king I can think of in culture, takes over a grouping of people, they do it through power, they do it through force, they do it through brutal means in order to conquer their people. But is that the way of Jesus? No. No, actually, it's a submission on the people who are saying, you are our teacher, our king, our leader, our ruler. And what we have here in Matthew is a little bit of what we call progressive revelation, where at this point, they're starting to get this feel for Jesus. Who is he? What is he about? Yeah, we've had some magi, and they said, he's a king, but what kind of king is he? And they're learning as the story goes on who this Jesus is. We look back on it and go, Jesus is the king. Now, if Jesus is the king, How do we respond to that? What's our position? What place do you and I today should we be in before this king? And I want us to see a tension this morning. It's a tension that we're going to talk about often. It's the now but not yet. It's the idea that Jesus is the king. He rules, he reigns amongst his people, his presence with us. Yet there's going to be a future consummation of his kingdom in which physically he rules, physically he reigns. But now, right now, he is our king. And what we should have in the back of our minds is there is a trajectory in which every single follower of Jesus is on, one in which when we see him, we'll be like him. And as followers of Jesus today, we're technically reaching into the future of what will be, and we're saying we want to be this now by the power of the Holy Spirit. I share all this to say this. This morning, 
please take Jesus' teaching seriously today. Because for some reason, we like to, as Western evangelicals, look at this and go, this is the stuff that like the goody-goody Christians do, but dude, I'm just free. And I can go ahead and act how I want to act and choose the ones I like and not participate in those. But Jesus is actually calling us into something. Now, this is going to teach us two things this morning. It teaches many things. As I said, we could spend 15 weeks, 20 weeks in this section. It's going to teach us two things this morning. One, Jesus fulfills the law. Two, Jesus fulfills the law so you can live under him joyfully moving towards him. That whole idea that Michael talked about a couple of weeks ago, moving towards him. Now, let's open our Bible and read chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is, all of the Old Testament scripture. Jesus is saying, I did not come to get rid of this. As we know it as the Old Testament, he talks about as the law and the prophets. He says, I have, come to abo- I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Through my many readings over the last few weeks, this term fulfill is one that is frequent in Matthew's account of the gospel right? He constantly is talking about Jesus fulfilling. And so we should cue in, we should tee up this idea. This is an important word that is here in the scriptures for us. He says, for truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse, verse 17 I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, is really the crux, the center, the thrust of this entire message, not only here this morning, but of what Jesus is talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. This says something about who Jesus is, and then it also tells us something about who we are or how we should respond to who Jesus is. It says, he comes, he came to fulfill, therefore it gives us an assurance and a motivation, but we have to have some background on this idea. And what Jesus is doing as he's talking to these crowds is he's forcing this issue of who he is and what he's all about. Now, this idea of fulfilling something does not mean doing away with. In fact, it's a very flexible word that is used in Greek. Let me give another example of this. If you want to, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at verses 54 through 56. You can kind of log these away and think about them. And let me just give this brief, quick summary of of what I think Jesus is getting at here. Then we'll read these. This idea of fulfill is to bring to fruition the eschatological sense. And I'll share what I mean in just a moment. In verse 54, it says, But then, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At the hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And all the disciples left him and fled. From the opening scene here in Matthew chapter 5 to this ending scene here, Jesus has this idea of fulfillment on it. And what it means to fulfill is to make something full. It's one. To complete a period of time or that which has already begun. To finish, complete, or bring to a designated end. Now, our tendency or at least my tendency, is to pick one of those and say, this is what Jesus means by fulfill. But when this word is used in the context that he's using it, it comes about in all three forms, that Jesus came to fill up, to make full, that he completes the period and the time, basically of Israel, which had already begun, and he brings it to its completed or designated end. This is how Patrick Schreiner, uh, Western Seminary, how he puts it. Jesus fills up Jewish history. He completes the time of Israel, and he brings Israel to its logical telos, which essentially means ultimate object or aim. Essentially, Jesus becomes all that the law and prophets have pointed to. Great. How? Now, I know this is super nerdy today, and I had a fun week, (laughs) but it's all going to come to an important end for us as we listen to this. Joshua Jip. He wrote this about this idea. Kings in ancient times were to give the law and embody the law internally and produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them into obedience to the law. It goes on. Evidence exists both in the ancient Near Eastern culture and biblical texts that kings were to be living embodiments of law who instructed through both teaching and example what it meant to follow the law. Essentially, as the king goes, so does the nation. Jesus, therefore, in doing this here in Matthew 5, is the Davidic king who becomes the living law. He's not just a prophet, though he is the prophet, who speaks and proclaims the law, but he's also the king who lives the law out perfectly. I want you to think about this, just even in our context today. If there is a mayor, if there is a governor, if there is some kind of other ruler or leader who gives the law and breaks it, how do we feel about that? We're pretty bent, right? Like, we expect everybody else to kind of break laws and rules, but those who are in some position of leadership and those who are giving the law, they should not be breaking the law. They should be perfectly embodying, living, breathing, doing the law as they proclaimed. We have lots of flexibility for ourselves, very little for other people. Now, throughout history, which king, ruler, leader, governor, mayor, parent, whoever, has ever fulfilled that perfectly? It's just none. It's just an absolutely absurd thought. As a parent, I'm like super good at giving the law in my house. (laughs) Do this, do that. Why didn't you? And we can go down. But then to embody it, to live it, I often fail and fall very short of that. Look at Jesus. We always talk about the importance of his life, and he conducts himself in such a way that he actually lives what he teaches. Now, Leon Morris, another great commentator, said, we must bear in mind that fulfill does not mean the same as keep. Jesus is speaking of more than obedience to regulations, but listen, 
It is also true it does not mean less. To understand what fulfill the law means from a monarchical perspective, one must put themselves to the first century conduct and the common notion about kings. Both Hellenistic, that is Greek, and Old Testament kingship discourse assert virtuous kings to submit to the law and thereby internalize them. We're going to get to the point. In the Neopathagerian essay on kingship, the Archytas presents the good king as the animate law. He lives it and the people imitate it. That was the purpose. Did you catch that? The king lives it and the people imitate it. What is Jesus doing? Just like Moses, he finds himself at the mount. Just like Moses, he has a crowd, he has a crew, he has a people, he has a kingdom. Moses is no king, though. He fails pretty bad. However, in this situation, what Jesus is saying and what he's calling us to is to listen up to my words. And I want you to hear these and let these seep deep into your hearts because there is a way in which I'm calling you to live. He did not come to nullify or set aside the law. He affirmed it, accomplished it, and brought it into reality. He embodies it both in speaking it and in doing it, in acting justice for his people. So here is the big question. Is the law bad? (laughs) No, it's not bad. Is the law bad? No, in fact, Jesus is teaching us how to be. He is giving us his kingdom ethic Your ultimate end as a follower of Jesus, he's saying, this is the trajectory that you're going towards, so why not begin living like this now? Jesus fulfilled the law so you can joyfully pursue him. I'm gonna be a stickler on this. There is a way in which God wants us to live. You guys agree or not agree? There is. There's a way, there's an ethic in which he wants us to treat our neighbors, to treat our enemies, to treat our frenemies. There is a way in which he wants us to treat our children. There is a way in which he wants us to conduct ourselves in this life. In fact, in Genesis, in that world that was created in the garden, God says, here are the mandates. Here's how I want you to be. I want you to rule. I want you to flourish. I want you to make. I want you to create. I want you to be obedient to me. In the epistles, in this sermon, we continue to get instruction on how to live our lives as the people of God in a contrast culture. There's a way that God wants us to be. The law is not a soul-sucking, fun-sucking, human soul-demising rule set given to us to prevent us from joy. It's actually living in the way of Jesus to lead us to joy. But what's so typical of humans is we've said, we know the true way to joy, and your way is not very good because it doesn't give me instant gratification, so let's do it our way And we have this human project and have seen how well that has actually gone. Not very good. We rejected his ways, but we cannot do it on our own. That's a problem. That's a problem. So we need somebody to lead us into righteousness. Now, what this means for us, in Ezekiel, I believe it was, also in Exodus, 
We're told that we're going to be given this rule that is actually upon our hearts. And the law of God is going to be written on our hearts. In Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, I'll put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. This is what God promised through Jeremiah. In Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will put my spirit in you. What is your act or response in that? It's passive. Something that God actively does. He is going to give you his spirit in order to do what? To then walk in his statutes. That is active. That is something that God has done for us. Then in return, we are participating in as a result of what he has done in our lives. And so Jesus is talking about to this crowd, to this group, this way of righteousness But this way of righteousness cannot simply be external. It has to be inward heart change. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, we have tons and tons of laws, 613 of them. And Israel does a really good job of failing every single one of them, don't they? What it shows is we could not live up to it in such a way to get our own righteousness. And then what did they start doing? They started looking at the laws. And they started just looking towards the external portions of it. For example, if you were a Pharisee and maybe you were a little bit greedy and you didn't like your parents. And they found themselves down and out and it was your responsibility to take care of your parents. You know what they'd cry? Corbin. We are dedicating this money over here for God later on. Until the parents pass away, and then they'll use it for themselves. It's set aside for the temple. You see, they were all about the external laws. They would look at, like, we won't get into it all today, but this law about divorce. And they actually had this exception in there that if a man found anything, anything that displeased him in his wife, well, then he could cry divorce and it'd be justified. First year of marriage for me, not this year. We're going on 13, praise God. But this one could have ended it for us. You see, I came home for lunch, and there my wife was getting ready to make me lunch, grilled cheese sandwiches of all things. Our first fight was not over money, was not over bills, it's over sandwiches. Listen, she's in there and she throws the butter in the pan. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making you a grilled cheese sandwich. The next words that came out of my mouth, listen, every man, do never, not ever utter them. That is not how my mother makes it. <laughs> Let's just say I made my own sandwich that day. All right? Now, in, in Moses' day, they could have said something like, I don't like how she makes my sandwiches. We're out of here. I had to cry that she is displeasing in my eyes. And they found ways around these laws. And it was always about how can we just externally view these and look at these in order to get what I want. And over and over again, we see that this idea of legalism is not what God is after. It's loyalty to him. It's loyalty to him. 
It's not just outward action. It's inward heart transaction that takes place in our lives. The Jews, they aimed to satisfy the law of God. They did. But they could not measure up. And so here we have this Jesus, and he comes. And you must hear this today. Without faith in Jesus, righteousness will never be had on your part. You can try to do everything that is said in here. But without Jesus, there is no forgiveness, no reconciliation, no redemption. We can continue to use big words. No propitiation for your sins. Without Jesus, none of what we're going to discuss in the next 10 to 15 minutes is even possible. So this is what I want you to hear this morning. There has to be, and what Jesus is showing here, one who fulfilled this, one who lived this, one whose righteousness then is imputed or given to us. But that's where a lot of Christianity stops for many people. And it's yippee and yahoo and baptism and we're great. See you in eternity. And we dismiss any of the teachings of Jesus and think, you know what, it's just covered over there. I don't need to look at my own heart over here. It's much easier to not desire inward change. Jesus maybe talked about it, but I only want to talk about how he fulfilled it and gave me his righteousness. No, no. And as we've all participated in different forms of sin, we've seen how it brings about not only the own destruction to ourselves and the undoing and unraveling, but it creates a ripple effect that goes into the world. And Jesus says, I have such a different way for you to live. Listen, why not start living like you will live ultimately in eternity now? Isn't that a radical thought? You're sitting in staff meeting and Michael just dropped that on us. I was like, oh, Yeah, (laughs) maybe we should start doing that. Maybe we should strive for that. Maybe we should reach into what is future and say, because Christ is king even now, his rule, his reign, his spirit has been written on our hearts. There is a way in which we're called to live and he wants us to live in that now. And the tension exists where the law is limited because it could never lead us into salvation, cannot save us, redeem us. We cannot live up to it. But then what we've tended to do is just say, I'm going to throw it all away. Who cares? Why even try? Why even strive? It'll just be all worked out in the end anyways. So when we look at the rest of this chapter, which is a lot of verses, um, (laughs) we're going to take the 10,000 foot view and I'm going to take an extra five minutes of liberty. So it'll be, it'll be great, which I got eight minutes if you're looking back there. So we're doing really well. What we're looking at today in verses 21 through 48 and in Matthew chapter seven, one through five, that whole section on judging is the 10,000 foot view that begins with submission to Jesus. He's not coming as this king that is going to take a sword and put it to your neck and tell you to convert or die. He is not throwing himself on you and enforcing this way of life. He is simply giving you an invitation and you are submitting to that invitation. Think about all of the theological language that we Western Christians use in talking about coming to know Jesus. We say things like, have you given your heart to Jesus? What is that really? It's submission, a handing over your wishes, your wants, your desires. How about, 
Have you ever given your life to Jesus? What is that? It's a laying down of your life, a taking on of his life, who he is. Or the one that we ask a lot, are you a follower of Jesus? What is that? Do you walk in the ways of Jesus? All of this language that we've kind of nuanced in our culture to make it more appetizing for people to hear comes down to this point of, do you submit to Jesus as king? And if you submit to him as king, do you live like he is king? Or do you still live like you are king? How do I know? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to convict you. It's going to crush you also going to cause you to say, I can't, he did, now help me. I couldn't save myself. I couldn't do this on my own. He did this for me. Now he's given me a new heart so I can walk in him. This whole idea is that you are no longer this independent human who does whatever you wish or pleases whenever you would like, but you've come under a new king that says, I know the way to life. I know how you can experience abundant life even now. I'm not talking prosperity gospel. I'm talking peace, shalom between you and God. It's been given to us. I'm not saying that you lose your individuality but you've now submitted to a new king. Somebody's king today. Who is it? Who tells you where the good life is? Who tells you how to get the good life? What do you believe about the good life? Well, Jesus is telling us what that looks like. And he says, here's how I want you to live. And what a lot of people have done is they said, I love Jesus's love for others. I love his reconciliation aspect. I love the idea of turning the other cheek. I love these things, but man, I hate his sexual ethic. I don't like when it comes to generosity. And what many people have done is they said, I'm gonna go ahead and pick and choose and piecemeal this thing together and I'll kind of follow these and kind of follow those. And what I'm saying today is take all of, all of the words of Jesus very serious this morning. So here's what he says. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid every last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what he has sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simple, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is actually restrictive, but we won't get into that today. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. If anyone would sue you and take up your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Say that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 7, just a few more verses. Judge not, verse 1, that you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do you not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What we see here this morning is that because Jesus is king, and he has a kingdom, and he has a people, he has given a rule. What we notice is we can't live up to that rule, but he is the one that has fulfilled that righteousness. He brings it to its end. He then gives that, as we know the whole story of scriptures, because of his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. He rules, he reigns as king. He has given us his righteousness and filled us then with the Holy Spirit. Now, because of that, we're not given the Holy Spirit just to have some like weird church gatherings and do some gnarly stuff. We're given the Holy Spirit to live in the ways that Jesus has called us to live, to deal with us, to convict us, to move on our hearts, to grow us, to change us. And so it begins with this idea of submission, and then Jesus calls us into both outward, and as you read this, inward change that happens in our lives with the highest calling of loving your brother or sister. And now what Jesus does in this section of teaching, and there's a little bit of debate, and maybe some of you will like this information, maybe not, but some people think that Jesus is upping the ante, and they're for giving some kind of new law and new testimony to God. Essentially, you heard it said in the past, but now I'm telling you to do this. That's a great possibility, and I'm not going to argue this with anybody over lunch. There's also another idea that what Jesus is doing, he's a fantastic Bible teacher. And he's actually opening up the Old Testament scriptures, much like we did when we went through Genesis. And he says, this is what this means. This means that you're not just supposed to have some external view of religiosity and legalistic standpoints and check marks of, hey, I didn't murder anybody, so I'm a pretty darn good guy. He goes, this law, this command is actually so that you might love your neighbor. 
care for them, be kind with them, to not even be angry with them. And so what Jesus, in my opinion, is doing is he's expounding on the scriptures where they had missed it, had some wrong ideas and interpretations of what was originally written, and they took it this other way and said, look, we're not doing these things. Jesus is saying, no, 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 look, this is what is meant in the scriptures and how I want you to live. And he says, I want you to look at your heart. Now, I'm reading a fantastic book called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And he has this quote of Leo Tolstoy, this Russian famous author, Nobel Peace Prize winner, early 1900s, late 1800s. And he says this, Tolstoy does, everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody thinks of changing himself. Foster goes on and says, let us be among those who believe that inner transformation of our lives is a goal worthy of our best efforts. I understand this morning that every sin you've committed because of Jesus, that's been forgiven. The shame taken, the guilt is gone. And there are going to be a host, a large amount of Christians that say, that's it for me. But what we're doing is we're quenching the work of the Spirit in our lives. When we ignore this idea that there's inner transformation that is to actually take place and happen within us to be growing in Christ, not just for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of our neighbors and the people around us, we do a major disservice to the teachings of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to do this morning, because I could probably talk for another 40 minutes and I won't. But I want you to think through one of these areas. And I don't murder. Are you angry with your brother or your sister? Let me put it this way. Have you said, he uses the word raka, or basically said, you're a dum-dum, you're stupid. You've used harsh language in talking about somebody. Oh, man, we need to deal with that in our heart. Men, women. Have we been lustful in our hearts? I don't commit adultery. Have you been lustful? Jesus says, that's the intent of that. You're just as guilty. Have you taken an oath and not been trustworthy and truthful with your words? Have you participated not in justice, but in retaliation? Because that's how humans often respond. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you worse. That's how we tend to treat people. I'm going to make this 10 times harder for you. Have you not forgiven? Oh, but brother, I'm covered under the blood. Yes, you are. But let me tell you something. We have been given in 1 Peter the divine life. There is a way that Jesus calls us to live, and it's not to your destruction, I promise you, but it is for your joy. Take the words of Jesus serious this week. Set your gaze on him and ask him, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to change? How can I practically love my enemies? Where do I need to apologize What do you have for me? Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word that is true. And Jesus, first and foremost, thank you so much that he who knew no sin became sin for me. That you stood in that gap, that you stood in that place, and you rise victorious, and there is hope that even in the places that I have failed, that I have let others down, that I've used my words hurtfully, that there is an abundance amount of grace, a deep well to draw from that is not exhausted. And I thank you for that. But may we as a church, as a people, take your words seriously and say, where, where do you want us to grow and want us to change? Ask for the spirit just to move in that way and that we create space for you to have your way in our hearts and in our lives this morning. So we give this time to you. In Jesus' name.